Let's pray. Lord, I know many of us are just getting settled in, trying to forget about the chaos of getting here. So we just want to use this as an opportunity to quiet our hearts and our minds, to invite you to do a mighty work in our midst this morning. We want to be available, we want to be expectant, and we want to be prepared for what you have for us. So we give you this time, Jesus. Amen. Well, growing up near a large university, one of the things I used to love to do was go to these old, kind of unique bookstores. I know I'm a little bit weird, but one of my favorite smells in the world is the smell of old bookstores. And if you add a cup of coffee to that, you're talking about an ideal day in my life. I know, my wife assures me that is not usual for most people. One thing you notice, though, wherever you go to a bookstore, is that they organize their books according to the book's genres, right? So over here, you'll have a section uh, based on science fiction. Over here is Western books. Over here is history. Over in the left-hand corner is the romance novels. Not that I would ever know. But that's how bookstores are organized, according to their genre. Now, some sections are bigger than other ones because there have been more books written. Quite honestly, there have been more books written in that genre than any other genre. Now, the reason I want to share that with you this morning is because we conclude our series in the book of Psalms today called Awakening. One of the things we hope you have seen is that the book of Psalms is full of all kinds of different genre of songs. Just in our short eight weeks, we've had a chance to look at a number of them. For example, we've looked at songs of wisdom, songs of comfort, songs of questioning, songs of confession like last week. There are all kinds of different psalms. And just like a bookstore, some of the psalms have a larger genre in the book of Psalms than others. And this morning, I want to look at an example with you of a psalm that is an example of the largest genre of the book of Psalms. If you're following on your notes with me this morning, which we provide in your bulletins, more than any genre, more than any genre, the book of Psalms is full of songs of praise. Songs of praise. Like I said, we're just going to look at one example of this this morning. I could have chosen from any number of them, but I chose Psalm 100 because it just so happens to be one of my favorites. So take your Bibles and turn them with me. Hopefully you're getting used to the Psalms right in the middle of your Bible practically and find Psalm 100 with me. We're going to look at these short five verses. And as we do that, I want to ask three questions. This is how the notes are laid out there for you. First of all, the question I want to ask is, what does God really want from you? What does God really want from me? And when we answer that question, I want to know the follow-up questions, which is, well, how do I give it to Him? How do I give God what he wants? And finally, why should I do that? Why should I give God what I want? Psalm 100 is going to help us look at those three questions and answer them together. So, have you ever asked that first one? What does the the Lord really want from me? What does he want from my life? People have stumped over that, but the answer to that question is actually much more simple than we've probably made it. How many of you have ever, maybe you grew up in a church where you practiced this, ever heard of the Westminster Catechism? Raise your hand if you've heard of the Westminster Catechism. 
The Westminster Catechism was written hundreds of years ago basically to answer some of the basic questions of the Christian faith. It was written in a question and answer format that literally parents would use to teach their children some of the church, the the basics of Christianity. And the very first question in the Westminster Catechism, if you look up on the screen, is this. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what does God want for us as human beings? What is the chief end? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? Read the answer to that out loud with me there on the screen. It says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what God wants. Amazing. If you're falling on your notes, what God most wants from us, what God most wants from us is to glorify Him and enjoy Him. To glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. What does God want from you? What would please Him? Have you ever thought, look, if I only knew what God wanted from me, I'd just do it. What God most wants from you is that you would glorify Him with your life and that you would enjoy, enjoy your relationship with Him. He is a personal God. Friends, I'm going to give you the most important part of this entire day right here in the beginning of this message. Because listen, if we don't get this, nothing else we do today is going to matter. Again, if you're following on your notes, you might even want to put a star next to this because I'm going to be talking about it all day. We need to know that the one thing God desires, the one thing God desires is my worship. And here's the key. And only I can give it. Only I can give it to Him. The one thing God desires is my worship. And only I can give it to Him. In other words, there's not a whole lot I can give God. There's only one thing that I can give Him, and it is my worship of Him. And that's what He wants most from me. Now there are, of course, different ways we worship the Lord. For example, we can glorify Him. We can worship Him by obeying His commands. That's one way that God receives worship. But the kind of worship we're talking about this morning, because we're in the book of Psalms after all, is we're talking about what we do when we gather together here on Sunday mornings. We're talking about corporate worship. The Bible tells us that the Lord is blessed. So often we think it's all about the blessings God gives me. The Lord is blessed when we, as His people, gather together to worship Him. That's really what the whole book of Psalms is written for. It is about the corporate worship of God. When the covenant people of God would gather together, they would sing these psalms as a way to glorify Him, as a way to enjoy Him. Now today, as the church, we're members of the new covenant in Christ's blood. And yet we still gather together weekly. We still gather together weekly to do the very same thing people have done for thousands of years. Now listen. I always want to answer this right away. The reason we don't do this is because God has this little tiny ego and He needs us to compliment Him Sunday after some Sunday. You know, get down on our knees like, you're amazing, God. And He finally feels better about Himself. That's not why we worship Him. We worship Him because we are showing Him gratitude for who He is and for what He's done. Now, if you've never thought about it, any parent in the room understands this naturally. When I come home from a long day of work and my two kids who are right down there in the front come running out the door yelling, Daddy, Daddy, jump into my arms, tell me I love them. I'm not thinking, we've already been over this. 
I know you love me. You only have to tell me that one time. We're good for the rest of my life. No, I am overwhelmed with joy and gratitude at the way that they're expressing themselves towards me. It makes my day. How much more do you think it makes our Father's Day when His children, that's us, gather together to express gratitude for who He is and what He's done? Friends, if you're falling on your notes, God doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need it, but He delights in it. He takes pleasure in it. He's blessed by it. And so, as His people, we gather to worship Him. That word worship has some rich meaning in the Bible. In Hebrew, it literally means to fall prostrate before someone on the ground. Touching your forehead to the ground is like a physical act of declaring, this one is worth more than me. It's minimizing ourselves and maximizing someone else. It is actually a royal word. It was used to describe how a subject would relate to his or her king. They would come into the presence, and this is key, they would come into the presence of the king where all the other subjects were gathered together and they would publicly declare, publicly declare their worship of the king. This one is worth more. So when you come here on Sunday mornings, I don't know what picture you have in your mind, but here's the one I'd like you to start coming with. We are entering the throne room of the Lord Most High. And we come as His subjects, as His children, to declare publicly, together, this one is worth more. That's what we're doing here on Sunday mornings when we worship. Publicly declaring. Publicly declaring together the praises of our King. Now, that leads to the second question, which is how do we do that? How do we do this together as God's children? And this is where the Psalms come in real handy, especially Psalm 100. We're about to read it, but I want you to get the picture in your mind of uh, the person that's being described here. The picture of this psalm is of an Israelite, a worshiper, coming through the temple gates, going into the courts of the temple complex where all of God's children are gathered together to worship. Now today, as the church, and I'm not talking about the church building, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we gather together to do the very same thing the people of Israel did here. We publicly declare that God is worthy of our praise. Now, I have the whole psalm. I know some of you opened it up. That's great. But I have the whole psalm uh, written down on your notes for one reason. I would love it if we, as an act of reverence to our King, would stand now in His presence and read this psalm, these words that were written thousands of years ago about Him, would you join me and stand and read them to Him now as a way to show Him that He is worth more? Starts in verse 1 and it says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving, and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. For the Lord is good, and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. You may be seated. 
How do we as God's subjects, as His children, worship Him? I'm going to have you do a little exercise right now. Maybe you weren't ready for homework, but school's kicking back in. So I'm going to give you a a minute of homework to do. I would love it if you take those notes, look at Psalm 100, and circle every way you see, just in those five verses, that we can worship the Lord. Go. How many of you counted so far? There's all kinds of them, aren't there? What I'd like to do is narrow it down to what I see in this psalm as three major categories of how we can worship the Lord. I know some of you are going to continue searching. Where's Waldo? But if you follow along on your notes, you're going to miss the first one. We worship the Lord with exuberant songs of joy. Number one. We worship the Lord with exuberant songs of joy. I mean, how can you not read Psalm 100 and walk away with the feeling of exuberance, of enthusiasm, of incredible celebration? The very first word, what is it? That was so weak. What's the first word? Let's let's practice the first word together. Ready? The very first word of the psalm is shout! Shout to the Lord. That word literally means a a battle cry. It's the same word that's used in Joshua chapter 6 to describe when God told the people of Israel to walk around the city of Jericho's walls. On the seventh day, they do it seven times, and then what are they supposed to do? Shout! And the walls come tumbling down. I'm sure it wasn't like, woohoo! Yay, God! Do your thing. No. It was a battle cry. And in the same way, when we gather together, there ought to be some shouting. Or let me put it differently. When we sing, when we sing together, it ought to be loud. And it ought to be joyful. Now I know some of you are uncomfortable with this, right? You grew up in church thinking that we should always be reverent. And truthfully, you find it hard to get that excited about singing. Singing is not really your thing. I know people who sometimes purposely show up late to avoid the singing. And yet, I see the same people at sporting events shouting and cheering and yelling, high-fiving complete strangers. And we come here on Sunday morning where we're celebrating the itty-bitty tiny fact that Jesus won the greatest victory ever. Who cares about sports? He won the victory over our sin and death. And we have a hard time getting excited? Friends, our worship should be joyful. Now listen, this doesn't mean that everybody has to do it the same way. We express our joy differently. There's no right way. There's no right way to express our joy. It's like not, if you don't lift your hands, it doesn't count. If you're not crying by the end of the day, it doesn't matter. That's not what we're talking about here, but we are talking about the unmistakable fact that in both the Old and New Testaments, when God's people gather together to worship Him, There was joy. There was celebration. There was exuberance. There was shouting. Now let me just address the elephant in the room here because this was an issue for me for many years of my life. Some of you have terrible voices. (laughs) 
and you're very self-conscious, very self-conscious about singing too loudly. Can I just say something about that that was really helpful to me? Another way to translate verse 1, see it, is make a joyful noise to the Lord. Get this. A joyful noise doesn't even have to be in tune. It's just a noise. doesn't matter if you can sing well or not. Listen, there's a lot of people in here who can't sing well. I'm sure you've noticed. If you've ever stood next to me, I guarantee you can't help but notice. Now you know why I sit in the front row most Sundays. But you know what? It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. I used to be so self-conscious about this until I realized at the heart of it, you know what's really going on? I cared more about what the person in front of me thought than about giving God the one thing He most wants from me that only I can give to Him. The one thing He wants from me is my worship. Who gave me my voice, after all? Who gave you your voice? He knows what it sounds like. He's not up in heaven going, make it stop when I'm singing. (laughs) He loves it. He loves it when I sing. Listen. He loves hearing your voice. He loves it. The one thing God wants from us most is the only thing that I can give to him. Now listen, of course there are people who are especially gifted to lead us in singing, and they should, right? God has given the church spiritual gifts for his glory and for the edification of the church. But if you're falling on your notes there, everyone, everyone can make a joyful noise to the Lord. Everyone can make a joyful noise to the Lord. All God wants from you is the one thing only you can give him, your worship. What would it look like for you to do that? What would it look like when you enter into this place for you to do that? Now the second way I notice in this psalm that we can worship the Lord is that we worship by coming ready to serve, not to be served. Verse 2 is actually better translated as serve the Lord with gladness. Some of your Bibles have it that way. Serve the Lord with gladness. You see, behind all of this praising and shouting and singing, there better be the right attitude to go along with it when we gather together as God's people, right? When we gather on Sunday mornings, just like the priests of the Old Testament offered the people's sacrifices at the altar of an act, as an act of worship, we are here to give ourselves to God. We're here to give ourselves to God. Paul picked up on this in Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Aren't you glad we don't have to give animal sacrifices anymore? All God wants is when we enter into His presence to give Him ourselves. That is our act of worship some of you know every time Christmas rolls around, these Lexus commercials start coming out where you know, a loved one buys a Lexus for another loved one and they have this big bow on it. Well, I remember one of the first ones that ever came out. This husband bought a Lexus uh, for his wife. They got the Lexus into the living room. He got the Lexus into the living room. She comes down on Christmas morning, you know, and obviously her eyes are wide open, her mouth is open. But all she can say is, where did you find a bow that big? That's an example of missing the point, right? There is a Lexus in your living room. And yet, sometimes I wonder if that's not a good picture of what happens to us sometimes when we come here on Sunday mornings where we're focused on the wrong thing. 
And we miss the whole point. This is an ongoing struggle for me. A weekly struggle for me. Too often I come to worship with the attitude, what am I going to get out of this today? As opposed to the attitude, what am I going to give to the Lord today? What am I going to give? You see, the problem is, you probably know this already, we live in a consumeristic society. Right? We live in a consumeristic society and that has made its way into the church and I need to be reminded constantly that church is not about my needs, my wants, my personal preferences, which pastor is teaching so I can show up or not, which worship leader is leading, what instruments are being played. Worship has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with what I'm bringing to Him. What am I bringing to Him? Am I here to serve or to be served? And what can we bring? I hope you're sick of this by now. But we can bring to Him the one thing He most wants from us, which only you can give. Your worship. Let me put it this way if you're on your notes. When we come to worship, we come not to be consumers, but to be consumed. I like that language, because again, we're talking about sacrifices. We are the now living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God, and we offer ourselves to him to consume us. The author of Hebrews wrote it this way in Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God, what? A sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Too often, I've treated worship Sunday mornings like an event that we come to. You know what I mean? I show up, I sit down in my comfortable seat, and I expect to be entertained. I expect to be wowed. And by the end of the service, I'm like Siskel and Roper. I get that one, my thumbs up. That one gets a thumbs down, when reality is the complete opposite. God is the one evaluating my heart. He's evaluating what I bring to worship, and I'm afraid too many Sundays in my life, he goes, you're here for the wrong reason. You're here for you, not for me. Friends, have you understood worship is not about you? I believe part of what it's going to mean for our church to continue to declare war on shallow Christianity, which is our mission here, is understanding the simple fact, understanding that worship is not me-centered. It is Christ-centered. Worship is about bringing my heart to God every week and laying it on the altar for Him, saying, I'm here for you. Not for me. Now what would it look like? Can you imagine what would it look like if all of us in this room agreed to do that on a weekly basis? You don't think the Holy Spirit would be unleashed in our midst in incredible ways? We're here to serve, not to be served. Third way I see in this psalm that we are to worship the Lord together is by seeking to know Him. Seeking to know Him. Look again at verse 3. Know that the Lord is God. I'm glad that is in here. Because this is such a great balance to the first way we talked about, right? God doesn't just want our worship to be emotionalism. He doesn't want it to just be a free-for-all where we're shouting about nothing. Maybe you've been to churches like that. Our worship must be intelligent. We must know who it is we're worshiping and why it is we're worshiping Him. Our worship must be thought out. This, to me, why it's so important that we continue week after week to open up the Bible. That's the place where God revealed who He is to us, so we want to know Him. 
And the way we know him is by opening up his word. The way we know him is by, I know that the worship leaders pick songs for us to sing together that speak of scriptural truth. They help us to know our Lord better. It's amazing to me that God even wants us to know him. That he wants to know me. And he wants to know you. And we can do that together every time we gather here to worship him. In fact, I just noticed in these five verses, these short verses, Psalm 100 gives us at least three things we can know about God. Three things just here we can know about God. And it really leads to this last question, which is, why should we even praise him? Why gather here every week on Sunday morning? Why? Well, ultimately, the big picture answer to that, if you're falling on your notes, is because the Lord is worthy of our praise. Period. The Lord is worthy of our praise. Period. But what makes Him worthy? What makes the Lord worthy of our voices, of our hearts? This psalm alone gives us three reasons. First, we worship the Lord because He created us. He created us. Verse 3, know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for God. You wouldn't be here. He's the one who created you. He knows everything about you. And He allows you to know Him personally. That's reason enough for me to praise Him. But there are other reasons in Psalm 100. Second, we worship the Lord because He redeemed us. He redeemed us. Look at the rest of verse 3. And we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. We're His people, it says. How did that happen? How did we become children of the Most High God? How did we become His sheep? Would you read John 10, 11 on your notes with me out loud? It says, I am the Good Shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Who spoke those words? Jesus. And not only did he speak them, he lived them out. He did lay down his life for us, his sheep. He did the one thing that we couldn't do. Redeem literally means to buy back. To buy someone back. And Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, has bought us back from sin and death. He has redeemed us. Is that reason enough to praise Him? If that's not enough, the psalmist gives us one more reason in verse 5. It says, For the Lord is good, and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. If you're following there, we worship the Lord thirdly because He is good and loves us faithfully forever. Because He is good and loves us faithfully forever. This to me has become one of the most precious parts of this psalm because we live in a world of bad, don't we? As a pastor, I talk with people every week who are in the midst of it. Bad. And yet, the truth is, even when my life may not be good, for those of us who know the Lord, we know that He is good. And His love for us endures forever. That word love, circle it in your Bible. Circle it on your notes. It's the most important word in the Old Testament. Some of your translations uh, might have it as this, as loving kindness. Some of your translations might translate it as mercy. You see, the problem is there's no English equivalent to this word love in Hebrew. 
Because it really means two things. It means, number one, God has affection for us. That's the way we typically think of love, right? I love someone. I have affection for someone. And God has that for His children. And yet there's a whole other dimension to this word. And it's this word of devotion, of commitment. His love, His affection is committed to us until the end. You can write it in stone. His love, His steadfast love endures forever. Do you know that's the most repeated phrase in the entire Psalms? If you've ever read it, you see it again and again, right? Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Friends, those are just but three reasons. I'm just barely scratching the surface here about why we can gather together and praise the Lord. In fact, on the back of your notes, there's 25 other reasons, and that's not even enough of why we should praise the Lord. The Bible is full. is full of reasons of why He deserves our praise. I want to close this morning with a story. And if it's okay with you, I'm actually going to read it. It was written by, it's a true story that Ben Patterson, who is an author, recalls, and he says it much better than I could. Imagine the mystery and delight of not just hearing, but seeing the story of Jesus for the first time almost as an eyewitness. That's what happened to a tribe in the jungles of East Asia when missionaries showed them the Jesus film. Not only had these people never heard of Jesus, they had never seen a motion picture. Then on one unforgettable evening, they saw it all, the gospel in their own language, visible and real. Just please picture yourself there. Your first time seeing a movie, and it's the Jesus film. Imagine again how it felt to see this good man, Jesus, who healed the sick and was adored by children, held without trial and beaten by jeering soldiers. As they watched this, the people came unglued. They stood up and began to shout at the cruel men on the screen, demanding that this outrage stop. When nothing happened, they attacked the missionary running the projector. Perhaps he was responsible for this injustice. He was forced to stop the film and explain that the story wasn't over yet. There was more. So they settled back onto the ground, holding their emotions in tenuous check. Then came the crucifixion. Again, the people could not hold back. They began to weep and wail with such loud grief that once again the film had to be stopped. The missionary again tried to calm them, explaining that the story still wasn't over. There was more. So they composed themselves and sat down to see what happened next. Then came the resurrection. Pandemonium broke out this time, but for a different reason. The gathering had spontaneously erupted into a party. The noise now was of jubilation, and it was deafening. The people were dancing and slapping each other on the back. Christ is risen indeed. Again, the missionary had to shut off the projector. This time he didn't tell them to calm down and wait for what was next, though. All that was supposed to happen was happening. Sometimes it's so easy to come here week after week. Get into the routine, into the rut, and forget. Forget that the Lord is good. And His love for you endures forever. And He proved it. He proved it. Friends, God wants only one thing from you. Only one thing. And only you can give it to Him. If you're falling on your notes, will I bring my heart? Will I bring my heart and give God the worship He deserves? Can you imagine what would happen in this place 
If we did that every Sunday when we gathered here together, let's pray. Father, you are good, and your love endures forever. We declare that to you this morning. We want to know you more, and we want to worship you as the body of Christ. We pray that we can do that in a way that pleases you in our remaining time this morning and for the weeks and years to come at Cherry Hills. In Jesus' name. Amen.